Welcome to Profiles in Social Innovation, spotlighting local leaders delivering sustainable solutions to complex problems, brought to you by the University of Maryland, Baltimore, in the heart of downtown Baltimore City. I'm Jim Kucher, and I'm the Program Director of the Graduate Certificate in Social Entrepreneurship at UMB's Graduate School. UMB is introducing a new four-course certificate in social entrepreneurship, and to celebrate that launch, we're reprising a series of conversations with some of the brightest lights on the social entrepreneurship stage. On today's profile, we're talking with Jonathan Moore, founder and CEO of Rowdy Orbit, a for-profit company that believes broadband infrastructure is an inclusive human right. Jonathan's mission is to spur economic development and community revitalization from the ground up. He's also just a ton of fun to be around. Jonathan, welcome to the show. No, thank you for having me. The pleasure's all mine. Wow, outstanding. Outstanding. So I, I think, that, Jonathan, the first thing that we need to get everybody's context on is you've been at this for a while now, and the firm has taken a lot of twists and turns that I want to get into. But one of the things I've always loved about you is just the name you chose for your venture. So um, if you would, what the hell is a rowdy orbit anyway? <laughs> yeah. So uh, rowdy orbit's been around. My background is I'm a copywriter by trade. And I used to write TV and radio ads in Detroit on Pontiac. Uh, when the ad industry imploded, you know, it's like, I gotta, I gotta figure this thing out. I gotta, I gotta do something, you know? So I had the skill set. So I said, okay, well then let me go back to Baltimore. Let me freelance. And then eventually, you know, I kind of got the, 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 the puffed up chest to start my own company, which was an ad agency. And I wanted to, to start something where it was uh, the name. I didn't want the name to be very ethnic. I wanted to be fun. I wanted to be vibrant. And I wanted to have like eventually some hidden definition and meaning into it. And so I was doing a radio show and I've been playing with the definition of how I'm rowdy or because somebody was going to ask at some point. And so <laughs> over the, you know, it's like, well, what the hell's it mean? So rowdy represents the shakeup of an end product. Um, Orbit represents the well-rounded strategic thought process behind an end product. Um, and so what we try to do is think about the ecosystem as a whole. And so whatever we put in that ecosystem, how does it give light to the next thing or the next piece of piece of the puzzle that gives energy? Uh, and if that thing were to die out, how do we maintain the ecosystem, you know, with, 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 with less of a footprint or handprint as possible? And so, okay. I mean, I still, I still jack up with Rowdy Orbit is, and it's been like 20, almost 20 years. Well, you know, it's like a lot of brands. It sort of becomes its own thing over time, and the definition oh, yeah. really isn't isn't that different. So you you mentioned return to Baltimore, so that would imply that you grew up here. So of course we got to throw down the Baltimore credentials and say where'd you go to high school? Oh uh, yeah, I, I knew that was coming. <laughs> I graduated from Woodlawn High School in 1988. There you go. There you go. And so so we started out with this sort of communications, public relations, marketing kind of a thing. Um, and it's it's taken a few twists and turns since then. So just kind of, you know, okay. walk through that journey a little bit of sort of, you know, how you pivot, because that's such an important part of understanding the entrepreneurial journey is that what you start with isn't where you end up and, you know. 
Oh yeah, uh, I'm a testament to that big time. Um, so where we started out was basically, we wanted to be an ad agency. We wanted to focus on a psycho demographic versus the ethno demographic, which is now culture. Cause I grew up in a neighborhood where it was all blue collar and we were white, black, Asian, Korean, Indian, whatever. But the kids, we were all the same. So we grew up around a certain culture. Um, and I knew that was more impactful than, you know, just one month out of the year. Um, and then out of frustration, uh, well, actually, frustration and thank goodness we lost an account. Around the same time, I saw people creating content online and posted on YouTube. And I had some friends in LA at the time where they were just getting together and building these macro, micro production companies. Uh, and then posting them up on YouTube. And, you know, because in, someone always has a piece of equipment, someone always has, you know, the uh, uh, computer, someone's always want to be a writer, someone wants to be an editor. So you get like two, three to four people together, you got a production company. Um, and so they were called web, they're called web series now. Um, and then Rowdy Orbit, these are the people I want to hang out with. And then Rowdy Orbit became um, a digital TV platform where we focus on the, um, um, what is it? The uh, uh, we want to be unapologetic the way that we saw content from black and brown people, um, and so around that time, around like around two ten, I was getting burnt. Twenty ten, I was getting burnt out because uh, I couldn't figure out the model. But right around every time we were behind TV One and BET getting mentioned content, we were always number three, and it was literally me in my garage in West Virginia, out of all odd places. Um, and so started lobbying FCC around that neutrality, uh, started to be introduced to the terminology digital divide uh, around 2010 with then FCC Commissioner Kleinburn. Um, and then it's like, okay, well then, you know, when people interact with a piece of content, then what next? And then I kind of got a little burnt out and frustrated because you're paying people a lot of money to do web content or to maintain your website. And guess what? They're in their basement hanging out. And so every basement looked the same. It was always uh, two game consoles, a television, two monitors, and a bong. And I, <laughs> I'm going to somebody's basement, and I'm giving them like a ten to fifteen thousand dollar check. And I'm like, you know, well, well, the bong it annoyed you with that check, I would assume. Well, yeah, just like at a point, just like okay, well then, how come they know how to do this? And how do we do this with other people? So for about two years, I kicked around this idea of how do you train people with criminal background to learn code? Uh, and we launched and we trained people in um, HTML5, CSS3, JavaScript, jQuery, and Node.js. Um, and kind of got frustrated with the whole entire process after two cohorts because the language of the industry and tech industry didn't match hiring people of color. Uh, it would be just to buy it that if you looked like you could pass and be a good cultural fit, well, then we would hire you or look non-threatening. But if you look like the narrative in Baltimore City that plays out quite often, I'm scared of you. And so after I went around the country, gave talks and talked to a whole bunch of people and just got tired of all the stupid questions, to be honest. And I said, well, what if we were to build something where people in the community can hire their own people. Then I was just like, oh damn, infrastructure. And then back then I lived in the hood, like in Sandtown in the hood. Um, and I noticed people didn't have internet, you know? And I started on this journey on, 
what if we did something around this thing, internet? And what if we did something where people could work where they live and all that other stuff? And so that's where we are now. It's, it's our goal right now over five to seven years is to use Wi-Fi technology, train people over that time. So that way we build work on cooperatives so the asset stays in the community. So each pivot came out of curiosity and frustration to figure out, you, you know, when, when you're going through a pivot, it's that one question you ask yourself and then you sit on it and you wonder if you're crazy or not. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, and, it's interesting too that it's, it's not just the frustration, which mm -hmm. is an important part of it, right? Something's wrong and I need to fix it, which is a, yeah. sort of definitely a key part of the entrepreneurship. But the other thing I loved about what you said was there, there are people I wanted to hang with. Yeah. You know, so there's that sort of collaborative spirit that you're not quite, you can't really put your hands on, you know, and I think sometimes in the textbooks, you get this idea that, well, I need to find a person with this skills, I need to find a person with that skill, I need to find a person, it's like, sometimes you just need to find people that you vibe with, yeah, and and, and see what happens out of that, and see where it goes, and, and how that aligns with the opportunity. The other thing I want to circle back on real quick that you made a comment about that I thought was really interesting is this sort of how folk present versus how the market is willing to, to accept them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been some really interesting studies out there where people have done things like apply to a university and then sort of de-ethnicize the name and send the exact same application, right? Yeah. And yep. see the acceptance rate. Same thing with the mortgage industry, right? You, you, yep. you, you sort of, you know... Um, you know, you apply for a mortgage and then you put more generic names and you apply for the same mortgage or bid on the same house and, and, and those kinds of things. So, and, and you had that experience first when you were still trying to train people to code, right? Well, I had that problem with an advertising. You know, I was, uh, I started out donor Baltimore in the mailroom, literally in the mailroom. And I was the, the bottom, bottom barrel employee on the mailroom. So, I mean, I had to, pick up the laundry, pick up the mail, take people's wives and mistresses to and from the airport, you know, pick up dry, clean laundry, tar roof, the whole nine. And, and then when I was in the mail room, I actually became an award-winning copywriter. Um, and they wouldn't hire, the, the ad agency wouldn't hire me or give me a shot because they had a closed door meeting, but I want to understand a closed door meeting on why not to give me a shot. And it had a lot to do with the color of my skin. Yeah. And back then, you know, when I was breaking into the industry, if you weren't Jewish, you weren't given a pretty much a shot. You know, yeah. So it's, it's, I discovered this a long time ago in advertising. And I've always used this, this, this technology space to how do we, how does this become a great equalizer? You know, and I said that over 20 some years, I think that we got it right based on, the stuff that I went through and being a part of the advertising industry um, and a lot of the biases that the biases, prejudice um, and discrimination that I went through, how do we avoid that for other people when we talk about doing the good work for community, but also how do we drive bottom line profits at the, at the same time? So you've got profit and purpose kind of intermingling all in there at the same time. Absolutely. So, so in all this journey, all of a sudden, you get this exposure about digital divide. You start to realize how few folks in stressed neighborhoods actually have internet access at all, much less anything that resembles what most of us are become so accustomed to. 
So you come up with this idea to, to, to fix that. So in, in non-technical terms, walk us all through sort of the mechanics of this fixing the div digital divide in that sort of block by block method that you've come up with. Just sort of lay that out for folks, how that, what that is and how it works. So trying to, I'm gonna have to talk real slow to make sure I don't get too tight. <laughs> and use very small <laughs> words. <laughs> no, that's just, that's for my purpose. Cause if I get all hyped up, then I'm like, blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> um, the internet, most people have no idea where the internet comes from. You know, a lot of people don't. Um, you think that you go into your house and it just works. So based on your socioeconomics, it can be defined as utility or it can be defined as a barrier. Um, and so we try to tap into where the dark fiber, where the internet is coming from and be able to transmit that signal through antennas to create a point to multi-point network in order to take that signal from that building where the dark fiber is located to eat, to transfer, uh, to transmit it throughout the community to go directly into the home. So that's considered so the, so the, an, the antenna is just like what we're used to seeing with our cell phones, where there's a pole or a high building with it, with a cell phone antenna. Technologically, that's very similar, correct? Yeah, very, very much, very similar. Right. Yeah. And so instead of the cell signal, what you're sending is broadband. Yeah. Yep. The same way that it would go through your Comcast cables underneath the ground. But instead of going underneath the ground through cables, we send it over top of the air. We're sending so, so I'm sitting here in my house with my home network. And the connection we're speaking on is a Wi-Fi connection. And I have a little broadcast router right over my shoulder that is connecting us to the internet. So what we're talking about here is a, a larger version of the same thing with more horsepower and, and broader reach, right? Yeah, broader reach, um, cheaper costs because of the whole infrastructure that's needed to maintain it. Um, and, you know, the way things are moving, that a lot more things are moving over top, over the air. So when you look at uh, Microsoft Airband that turns TV waves into the internet, uh, as well as with Starlink, uh, tells, uh, Elon Musk company is going to use satellites the way direct television to cast those down to the rest of the planet, to everywhere on the planet. So if I'm in one of these communities where you've put up this antenna, I open my laptop, I turn it on, and just like I'm here on my home network, I get that lovely little blue signal with all the curves on it. And I log in and I've got a network and I've got access to relatively fast internet without having to run tons of wires and go down into the sewers and all of that stuff, right? Is that? Yep. Yeah, it's still, it's still fast and it still may be in cases, depending on where you are, faster. For faster than what I would get from the cable coming out of the sewer line. Yeah, because it's it's... You know, there's infrastructure costs when you go underneath the city and not everything underneath the city that you have access to, it's going to require a ridiculous amount of permits and a, a ridiculous amount of political, uh, a, a lot of politics behind it. 
Sure, sure. And then you've got the whole argument about Comcast and the alleged Comcast monopoly and why the city won't do it and all that kind of stuff, which yeah. we won't go into because that's a rabbit hole that will take its own hours conversation. All right. So you and a couple of crazy other people climb up onto the top of a building and you stick this antenna there, right? Mm hmm how what what does that do um, distribution wide? How far does that go? I mean, it's not you know it's not like um, for those of you that may be familiar with um, what they call Television Hill, where WBAL has its antenna that's you know several hundred feet tall. So how how far out can I go? You know, fifty feet, a hundred feet, a block, two blocks. How how how, how far do I spread that access with one of those antennas that you put up? So realistically, you want to go more than a two to three block radius before you start to lose coverage. So you want to stay within a certain bubble. Uh, and then when you get to a certain point, you want to be able to put a switch, which will help to bump that signal up so you can go a little bit further. Okay. So I'm at the corner of, say, oh, I don't know, Hollins and Poppleton in West Baltimore. Yeah. And I put an antenna up on the building and within a block in each direction, anybody who's there should be able to access this. Yeah. If, if it's a free Wi-Fi hotspot, then it's a two block radius, depending on the strength of the signal, um, based on line of sight, if you can see the antenna. But to make sure that you connect to the individual homes, they will need to have an antenna. Someone, something's got to receive the signal and take that signal to the converter box that will turn that into the internet. Okay, okay, so I still need some gear inside my apartment, yeah. or my house to make this happen. Yeah. Okay, so now one of the things I think is interesting about what you do is you are doing this out of um, a social motive because you recognize the digital divide, but it's not free, right? Yeah, for the first for the first year, it is free uh, for okay. residents. Uh, then after that, we're trying to make sure that we come up with a price point, because in the end, you have to look at it that we're building work on cooperatives, and so to maintain this infrastructure, you're going to need people and revenue to keep this thing going. Um, and so, you know, like right now, the FCC has a program where they're paying uh, up to fifty dollars a month for people that are on social services program which helps to cover a lot of that cost, which is great. Um, and so, you know, there are other, um, there are other, let me see, community-based organizations that are raising funds to make sure for individuals, because not everyone can afford to pay, say $7 a month. It's a stretch, but it doesn't mean that they should go without. So you work with community-based organizations to say, okay, well then what do we need to do to make sure that someone can pay or offset that cost until they're able to get to a certain point that they're able to pay. Because so, some people, a lot of people take pride in paying their bills. Amen. You know? Oh, no, no. There's a whole lot of research about how true charity, meaning that you give someone something for free, does more to reinforce the giver than it does to liberate the recipient. Yes. Right? Great um, good language. Yeah, Robert Egger. Uh, Begging for Change is the name of the book for those of you that are listening along. Fantastic book and, 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 a, and a great, great early social entrepreneur that was right down the road in D.C. So there is a there is a cost involved, but that cost is subsidized to a certain extent based on ability to pay. I know I'm oversimplifying, but 
Yeah. That's basically basically where you're going, right? Yep. Yep. So you mentioned this worker-owned cooperative thing. So before we get into how that works, <laughs> which is a fascinating piece, um, just walk everybody through what a what worker-owned cooperative even means. You know, so there's, there's folks that I think, you know, you say co-ops and immediately people start getting into the bizarre conversations that we have in this country about socialism and capitalism, which of course are important, but, you know, again, another rabbit hole that we could spend another hour on. But just in sort of basic mechanics, what, is, what does it mean to be a worker-owned cooperative? What it means is the decisions of the organization are from a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach. And a top-down approach is from the, exec, the CEO, executive committee, or board, executive community down to the employees. Now, when you start to look at it from, uh, look at it as the people own the company and people make decisions on what direction the company should go into. And will people will split the profits evenly. There may be a difference in salary, but as far as the level of the term that everyone uses right now, equality, it's across the board. And so, you know, for, for us, it, it just made sense because now this is in the hands of the people because on the flip side of this, it's we're in community that is known, has historical documentation of culture that influences the world. And so if we give, if we put resources in the community that's ran by the bottom up approach, how are they gonna take this thing called the internet and this digital infrastructure to make it theirs that has a potential of influencing the rest of the world, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. when you look at it, it's, it's, we're turning, we, we don't want people to be, we, we're tired of black and brown people being entertainers. <laughs> and you're actually builders. Fascinating so, statement. Yeah. yeah, so we're, we're, yeah. We're, putting the, we're putting the theory to work. So instead of the traditional model that we're used to here, and even in nonprofits, this is the case, you know, in a for-profit company, you have the CEO or the president that is, you know, got the big, wand and waves and tells everybody to go. But even in a even a traditional nonprofit, you've got an executive director or, or president of some sort. So we're very used to in this country, this top down model that you talked about where the leader calls all the shots. Mm -hmm. Right. So now we're saying, wait, no, the people that are actually doing the work that are what we would know otherwise is the employees in the organization are getting together and collaboratively deciding where the entity as a whole should go. Absolutely. Right? Yep. So, so from a from an empowerment standpoint, that sounds great, but gosh, it probably gets a little messy in execution, doesn't it? I mean, you know, <laughs> that's why we got five to seven years <laughs> because so, it's 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 you know when you're, when you're in community, you have to wade through the generational grudges of like half Hill McCoys. Um, you have to wade through the individuals who actually have the components to collaborate with the people, um, other individuals, how people communicate, uh, what is the legal structure. Um, when you start to, when Rowdy Over's name is on a contract and we turn it over to community, how do we ethically do that without, without, um, without being in any type of liability? Um, so, I mean, there, there are a number of things you have to factor in. But what we're talking, what we're doing is we've given ourselves time. Mm -hmm. So we've got time to screw it up and then get it right. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, now if we had tried this in two years, it would have been, it, it wouldn't have been attainable. 
you know, we said five to seven years, it allows us to really grow from not only um, the people that we're hiring or training, um, but the, the community itself. Because if we want these individuals to be subject matter experts in their field, what's really needed to be a subject matter expert? Okay, well then, if you're not a book learner versus a visual learner, how do you institute that into the curriculum, but make sure that everyone is on the same page? And if people have problem with certain type of language, you know, it doesn't mean that you have a speech impediment or learning disability, like they peg you in, in high school or in middle school or whatever. It's like, how do you learn? You know, and then how do we take that and turn that into an asset to a point where you believe in yourself? And it's also to a basic thing. It's like, how do you how do you get people to, to ask for help who's not comfortable or used to asking for help? I hope you're finding today's conversation inspiring. If you have a heart to make the world a better place, but aren't quite sure where to start, the graduate school at the University of Maryland, Baltimore may be able to help. UMB recently launched a four-course graduate certificate in social entrepreneurship, a fully online program that provides the practical skills to drive social impact with sustainable funding. The program is affordable, it's accessible, and it's enrolling now for the fall of 2024. Our social entrepreneurship curriculum provides the fundamental tools and competencies needed to take ideas to action and prepares you to build your own venture or lead change in an existing organization. If you'd like to begin to build your own profile in social innovation, contact us at graduate.umaryland.edu innovation. So your company, your business, is climbing up on the top of these buildings and putting these antennas up and getting these folks set up. Initially, it's free. After a little while, you start to introduce a fee structure. And then over time, you're, you're turning this over into the hands of the neighborhood. Am I, am I, am I tracking? Yeah, you're good. Okay. <laughs> so that's where that capacity building piece that you're talking about a minute ago comes in to help folks get to that point. But at yeah. some point in time, there's a transaction that occurs where this asset that you spent a lot of time building, you're basically handing off to somebody else. Now in the venture capital world, we would call that a financial exit where you would either have an initial public offering or a stock buyback or some sort of a thing where everybody would get rich and pay a bunch of attorneys and all that good stuff. You're not doing anything. So, I mean, I almost got to say, what the hell's wrong with you, man? Well, it depends on what parent you talk to, uh, <laughs> to be honest. But for those of you listening along, I was saying that facetiously because I do know what's wrong about with him and I, and I love him for it. But, you know, it's, 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 we're following this, the model called exit to community um, that you graciously introduced me to. And I've been bonkers ever since. Um, and really trying to figure out exactly how do we do it without extracting as much of the asset out of the community as, as much as possible, because it won't make any sense if we're building this thing with community. But then on the flip side, we're going to extract as much money out of the community as possible. You know, and so it's, it's still we're still learning this because I think that it's vitally important to do this work, but to find ways to put yourself out of business. 
you know, but, but when, um, you, but when you put yourself out of business, you're still recovering your costs. I mean, you're not you're not doing this 100 percent charitably. You're still getting your costs back and, and, and paying some salaries and those sorts of things. Yes. But it's it's that it's that excess that you typically see in the venture capital world that you're yeah. essentially conceding. Right. No. So we're, we're doing it in reverse. It's how do we cover our costs? over a five to seven year time span. So that way it's a minimal amount of money doing the, the exit to community. And how do we phase that out long-term? So say if we say, okay, well then it's gonna take 20 years for us to get you know, paid out X, X, X return, then that's fine. But if we're doing it in multiple communities around the country, you know, it doesn't look, it doesn't suck. You know, and it's not <laughs> that bad at all. You know, and now we can divert those funds now we take a different position within the organization or within the structure. So that way we just aren't always in the way. And I think that most often where, where I get annoyed, um, where it's go fast, make as much money as now, uh, let's not worry about the future uh, and let somebody else worry about the future. You know, and I, that doesn't work for community. And I don't think that works for social impact because you've got to be, for, for, for me, it's I got to be hell bent and hyper focused and laser focused on the problems that exist now, but also build for the future because anything that you put in community leaves a footprint. And so that's a great that that's a great phrase. I love that. Anything you do in community leaves a footprint. Yeah. And so, what type of footprint are you leaving? Mm. You know, for us, I try to make sure we leave a minimal footprint as possible. So that over time, you won't see that Rowdy over built this. It's just there was an organization that came in that built this with community. And now they can sustain 10 to 15 people making above more than the livable wage. You know, and so when we start talking about scaling and exit, we're going to have to look at instead of looking at this little bit of a community, we're going to have to look at multiple communities that we do this in so that we recover our costs wholeheartedly. And, and when you say community, essentially, you're talking about that one or two block radius of an individual antenna that we were talking about a minute ago. So the yeah. idea is that as you as you as you exit out of these things, perhaps you've got, you know, an eight to 10 to 12 square block neighborhood that becomes its own, for lack of a better term, social enterprise to run this thing over time and, and that the folks that live there are the ones doing that and and receiving the the financial benefits as well as the the, the training and all that is that yeah so we're, we're looking at it from a geographical standpoint of view because you have to to, to take into consideration that um transportation is a barrier um mm -hmm. so say in baltimore yeah 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 exactly and if it rains or it snows i mean you're pretty much screwed and good luck to you you know um, unless you, you know, can find somebody, you can get a hack, or if you have enough money, take a ride share. Um, and so we're looking at how do we, how does it work on cooperative service up to 9,500 people? And when you start to look at that, I mean, when you look at Curry's Bay, Brooklyn, Cherry Hill, and then probably another community in South Baltimore, well, then those 10 to 15 people can serve as South Baltimore, you know, and if they do have to take a bus, it's one bus. Right. You know, if they take a train, it's one train. And so we were very conscious and deliberate about, you know, uh, making sure that if we're going to hire local residents, 
but what are the barriers that exist to gainful employment? You know, one, the asset is if you live in that community, I guarantee you grew up there for generations. And so everyone knows you. And so the language you speak in between becomes education. And that right. education becomes feedback to us. And so right. that feedback allows us to be proactive rather than reactive. And so we will know, okay, what are the disparities that are up and coming or that are on horizon that the community is talking about that we can potentially use our pipes to get ahead of to build strategic relationships, which is revenue. Um, right. So, you know, we really wanted to think about these things and have these subject matter experts be as visible as about anything else that's in that community because they become influencers because people are going to ask. That's fascinating. Yeah. So you're, you're an influencer, but you're an influencer in a community where your personality, your rep, your, your, your reputation, your background, your context is already settled, you know, and, and we spend a lot of time, in thinking about social innovation, making sure that we don't perpetuate what a friend of mine refers to as the white savior industrial complex, which is, you know, mm -hmm. you parachute into a neighborhood with a solution without any credentials whatsoever, you know? So, so this becomes, so this, this antenna, this node, this network that you're building becomes not just a way to solve the digital divide, but also a way over time, perhaps, to shift the culture of the neighborhood in its entirety and, 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 and truly bring folks up on multiple levels, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're using this as a subversive way to bring in digital infrastructure to make sure people are employed uh, that live there that become influencers and subject matter experts so people can see that there's a different pathway to getting either in technology or making a... Or if you decide to stay in your community, here's a different way to stay within your community. Outstanding. Couldn't couldn't have come up with a better conclusion if I wanted to. Thank you, brother. No, my pleasure. Yeah, really, really appreciate, appreciate it. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. If you'd like to explore the world of social innovation further, contact us at graduate.umaryland.edu slash innovation. On behalf of the Graduate School and the entire University of Maryland, Baltimore, I'm Jim Kucher. Thanks for joining us. Peace.